You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And you can find that in your chairback Bible, if you care to, or on your phone, or the Bible that you have with us, with you. Starting with verse 21, chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we, do th- we thank you. We thank you so much for the truth that is embodied in this passage. We thank you for the passage itself and the sermon that Pastor Jeremy is about to bring to us that will help explain to it and how crucial it is in our lives. May our ears be open to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Craig. It's only a few years ago that Ethan Hunt was in Prague with a small team, sent there to find a rogue agent who had taken the knock list, was going to sell it. So Ethan Hunt and his small team, they show up there, but this was no small operation because everything went sideways, and all of a sudden, everybody's dead except Ethan Hunt. So naturally, he calls the IMF director, impossible mission force director. He says, everybody's dead. And that's when he finds out it was a setup. It was a setup to sniff out the mole. And he's the only guy alive, so guess who the mole is? Thus begins Mission Impossible. Dun 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 This movie, a number of years ago, quite popular. Tom Cruise, the lead, is there trying to then clear his name for the rest of the movie. How will he do it? What will happen? Turns out. Mission Impossible franchise is quite popular. I don't want to spoil the rest of the movie for you, but seeing as there are six Mission Impossible movies, you probably can quickly surmise whether he was successful or not in the endeavor. Wikipedia tells me this has been a very successful movie series, $3.5 billion earned worldwide, which explains why they are right now working on Mission Impossible 7 and Mission Impossible 8. Turns out our 
culture has fallen in love with a kind of movie where the good guy has all the odds stacked against them, against the bad guys, and with plot twists and masks coming off, revealing you thought the good guy was the bad guy, but now really the bad guys, he's turned into the good guy, and it was all a setup to see what happens in the final money scene when they all blow each other up and then Ethan Hunt wins. So if you like this sort of a movie, like the rest of the world, iconic, death-defying scenes, stunt doubles, etc. I do. There's like these wonderful moments in the movies where, where he's suspended from the wires and he's like not going to touch that knock list or when he's jumping on an airplane. I learned he actually did this airplane stunt himself. He's up at however many feet hanging onto the outside of an airplane. That's cool. With each success, it makes sense why at the end of the movie, they love to have him receive this final message where It'll self-destruct in five seconds, but your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go back and watch the next movie on the list. Good morning. Welcome to Mill Creek. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here. I'm so excited to be preaching this morning. Of course, every Sunday, I'm excited to be preaching. But this Sunday, I'm especially excited because you are here and you are going to hear what I believe is the greatest of all time paragraph preached. Pastor, is this going to be the greatest of all time sermon? No, I did not say that, but I did say it is a great text. If you're ever wondering how you can like subtly cut a pastor down after they're done preaching, you can just say, Pastor, that was a good text. <laughs> hey, man, great text you preach. Yeah, we would agree about that. And this, some argue, some theologians argue, this is the greatest paragraph of all time. That's right. You take Aristotle, you take Plato, you take Shakespeare, you take whatever paragraph you'd say, man, that's on the top 10 list probably. You can put Moses in there. I don't care who you pick. I would argue, and some theologians do, I believe them. I think this is the number one written paragraph in the history of the world. So you could say I'm a little excited to get to preach today because it's going to resolve so beautifully this incredible tension that Paul has laid out in our text situation that I think is reminiscent of Mission Impossible. Like, how is the world who is under the wrath of God guilty, staring down the barrel of God's justice? How will this problem be resolved? Is there any way to be rescued? You think Mission Impossible has some interesting plot lines? Wait till you hear what God does to save the day in what is the greatest rescue story of all time. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's go. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is where I'd like you to put your finger. We'll get to 21 to 26, but right now, I'd like you to get to Romans chapter 1. Open your Bibles, get your device out. English Standard Version is what I'm preaching from. I want you to be able to see with your own eyes what the text says. And just so you know, as we get in this passage, as if you heard it read, there is some dense language in the paragraph of Romans 3, 21 to 26, but I promise if you stick with me. I'm going to explain those words. You're going to walk out of here, hope, understanding what Paul is saying. Well, for now, let's begin with the first big idea of this, this sermon, which is the problem. First big idea, if you're taking notes, is the problem. And this is 
going to be set up from 118 to 320. If you've, if you've not been with us for some of the Roman series, it'd be important for you to know that as Paul begins this letter with, he's establishing his credentials and he's trustworthy. He's saying, Romans, you can trust me. I love you. And I want you to understand this message. He, he, he's never been there in person. So he's trying to get some street cred with them. And then in 118, he, he goes after the godless pagans and he explains why they are under the judgment of God, which would leave those in the, Church of Rome, who are Jewish, smugly listening along, nodding their heads, thinking to themselves, yeah, those godless pagans, they really do have it coming. I'm glad Paul's saying so much. And then in 2, 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns the tables on him in this sort of gotcha moment. It's like rope-a-dope where all of a sudden he starts coming at haymakers against all of these Jewish Christians who thought that we were just going to talk about them out there. And he says, us too, you too are under the judgment of God. And he just starts hammering them from 2-1 into chapter 3. And you can see in your text, if you've got it open there, somewhere around 310 to 18, he starts cross-referencing the Bible and he starts stringing these little pearls together in what they call a katina as he's making his argument that you are under the wrath of God. All of us are. And he uses the Bible to prove it. The summary is in 320. This is the cherry on top of the crummy Sunday, 320 from the text, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that's the big idea. If, if, if I've already lost you in this overview of Romans, what you just got to get is all of us are under the righteous judgment of God. All of us are guilty. God is going to judge the world. And that would have left the original audience in there feeling terribly desperate, very discouraged, perhaps shocked. Because they had been counting on their righteousness before the law, supposed righteousness, to save them. It, it would be like if you got a phone call tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow's a holiday. That's weird. Uh, if you got a phone call on Tuesday from your retirement people, however you do retirement, you got a letter in the mail, you got an email, and they said, ah, bummer of news, man. All your retirement's gone. That would feel awful. I know you've been saving all this money, but just so you know, it's gone, and we're real sorry about that. That's, whatever that feeling is that you kind of find some security and comfort in, that would be how they're feeling in this moment. If you got a call that you just lost your job, and you're all of a sudden like, whoa, 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 I'm scrambling. I, what am I going to do? God, where are you? Uh, kids, if all of a sudden your parents said, hey, tough, tough cookies, we're moving, and you're going to say bye to all your friends, and we're going to go to a whole new city, and you're thinking to yourself, no, I don't want to do that. That's the sort of loss that they would have been feeling. Wherever you find peace, comfort, or security, that's where they found it was in their legalistic righteousness. It is gone as Paul has systematically and comprehensively dismantled their imagined spirituality. Paul is in effect saying, you are staring down the barrel of God's righteousness and you will be judged and nothing you do is gonna be good enough. I don't care how many times you've gone to church, I don't care how, many how much money you've given, I don't care how nice you are to, to the little old lady down the street, none of it matters. You are under the righteous judgment of God and there's 
nothing you can do about it. Mission impossible? I'd say so. Romans 3.22 says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the problem that Paul has laid out makes Ethan Hunt and a problem in Prague where there's a mole, that's small potatoes compared to this. The righteousness of God in judgment against all of mankind. This is a cosmic problem of eternal judgment. That's the problem in the book of Romans. Gee, Jeremy, I could have skipped all those sermons and just heard that. Well, I guess so. If that's the way you want to roll, there it is. Chapters 1 to 3. But let's stop here and consider a question at the end of this problem. Here's the question for us. Do you agree with Paul? Do you agree this is a problem? So my guess is some would go, yeah, I, I agree this is a really big problem. Others, though, would say, no, I don't. I don't think God's a righteous judge who's going to hold me accountable. Well, that's an important question for you to consider. Do you agree the problem that Paul's laid out, that you are staring down the barrel of God's righteous wrath. This is what the Bible teaches. And if you, if you don't agree with the problem, then I want you to clearly understand this is God's word. This is what God's saying the problem is. I beg you to reconsider. Well, that's the problem. Here then comes the twist in the plot line. The, the twist, many people weren't seeing. Often when you watch a movie, there's a part of the movie where all of a sudden there's this twist and you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. That's the moment we have here as Paul begins the best paragraph of all time. Here's big idea number two, the twist. I draw this from 21 and 22. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been revealed. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Here is the twist. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What, what, what Paul's saying is there is another way to have the righteousness of God. There is another way to have your sin dealt with. I should define God's righteousness real quick because this is the way Paul's using it in case the Christian vocabulary in your head isn't quite sure how to uh, file this idea of God's righteousness. The way, the way Paul's using righteousness, I put it on the screen for you if you want to write it down. God's perfect nature, which requires like, by definition, God's perfect nature requires judgment against all unrighteousness. I mean, there's plenty of people in our world who are going to go, look, bro, why you got to be preaching that God's so mad and angry about everything? Like, that's not the God I want to believe in. I would just say, well, then that ain't the God of the Bible. Whoever you're believing in, then this God, 
Because this God is righteous, is, is holy, is altogether different than you and I. This, this God, he is perfectly righteous. And by definition, he can't just look the other way when somebody sins against his righteousness. That's not the way it works. So the biblical God is holy and righteous. And by definition, requires judgment against all unrighteousness. So here's the twist that the, that the Romans didn't see coming. They knew the Old Testament law. They knew all the way from, from Genesis to Malachi that teaches all you have to do to be perfectly righteous is perfectly obey the law. They knew that. And what they had gotten twisted in their brain is that they could actually succeed in that. But what Paul laid out in the problem that we already looked at is, nope, you stink at doing that. You're real, real bad. But now, there is a way to be righteous that doesn't come this way. It comes apart from the law, although the Old Testament bears witness to it. So, so what you have to understand, church, is there are actually two ways to be saved. Oh, my goodness, is this guy really teaching there's two ways to be saved? Only because the Bible teaches it, my friends. The, the two ways to be saved, in case you didn't get this, is you can either just be perfect I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you think you're in here. Let me just tell you, Paul hammered you and said you aren't. But if you could be perfect, if there was a way that you perfectly in heart and mind and motive did everything like the Old Testament law, why then you would, you would be righteous before God. And at judgment, he'd look at you and he'd go, oh, look at you, Mr. Perfect, Mrs. Perfect. Come into my heaven because you're perfect. That's one way. The other way then. That's the old way. The new way then, look at verse 22. Paul explains it right there. Here is the second way. Here is the twist. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the best part of the whole book. Best part. And my fear is, like a movie you've seen so many times, you might be thinking, if you're here and you've grown up in a Christian house, you know all this stuff. My fear is you'd be looking like, oh, yeah, I love this movie. I've seen this one before. But you would, you would miss. You would forget how precious this is. I don't want the luster of this to be missed it would have been beautiful to the original audience. If you believe in Jesus, this should be beautiful to you. Here is the plot twist. Far more surprising than anything that happens in Mission Impossible. Even the great Martin Luther, he kept cooking on this concept. He could not make sense. Knowing that he stood under the righteous wrath of God. But how does it work until this verse blows up in his mind. Realizing he could never attain the righteousness of God in the old way. But there is a new way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul saying, Roman church, the law cannot save you, but there is one who can. And it is by having faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets, by the way, the Old Testament, they all pointed to the new way. And here it is. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's pause here in this moment of the twist to ask another important question. Here's the important question that you need to wrestle with, church, if we're going to let the text drive application. Do you know this new way? 
to obtain the righteousness of God. Do you know the new way? Do you understand the plot twist? Extra credit if you're like, yes, I do. Okay. Do you know then how the whole Old Testament points to it? Like if you read from Genesis to Malachi, as you read Genesis and Exodus, do you know it's all about Jesus? It all points to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ? This new way, this plot twist means everything to Paul. It ought to mean everything to us. It meant everything to the Romans. It is the way of salvation. And what is more, the twist shows us the hero of this story. If you're going to watch a movie, you've got to know who the hero is. And y'all got to know the hero of the book. It's in verse 22. Who is the hero? Big idea number three. Who is the hero of the greatest rescue story of all time? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the hero. He's the most important one. He's the only way by which you can be saved since it turns out all of us are unrighteous and unable to be good people. The hero is Jesus Christ. So I don't know where you're at in your journey with Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you had a chance to come up here and share like where you're at on your journey or if you're going to get ready to be baptized and you're going to share your testimony from there. Now, I don't care if you'd say, you know, this person was really important in my journey with Jesus. Or maybe there was a pastor in college who was really helpful. Or maybe it was a mom or a dad or a Sunday school teacher. I don't know what person that you would say, man, they were really helpful and give them a lot of credit with your words. But I'm here to tell you, whatever human being you're picking and saying they're really important to you, they're nothing compared to Jesus. He is the hero. He's always the hero of your story. He can use anybody he wants. He's the hero. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith here is very important love for you to circle faith. I want you to understand what this word means. Because if, if the way to be saved comes through faith, why then you've really got to understand that word. You've got to understand what faith is. And if a, if a kid came up afterward and said, you know, pastor, can you just help me understand what does it mean through faith? This is what I would say. Since our whole salvation is built on faith, it would be like this. If, if my kid's they love to ask for different things. They've been asking for a puppy, and they've been asking for a Nintendo Switch. I can't be bothered with picking up puppy poo all day long, so I got them a Switch. They're still dogging me about a puppy, maybe someday. But when I go to give them this Nintendo Switch, I say to them, great job finishing school, a crummy year for school with masks and COVID and isolation and all that stuff, but here's a Nintendo Switch for you. And they go, yes! I could put that Nintendo Switch. It was on the counter. Now, faith, the parallel, parallel idea that we'll get to in a moment, it would be them taking the Nintendo Switch as their own. See, if the Nintendo Switch just stays on the counter and they go, oh, man, Dad and Mom, you're the best. Thank you so much. But they never accept it as their own. The offer is there. The gift is there. But they've never taken it. So you have to accept this gift, and that's what faith is. It's taking the gift of Christ's righteousness. So, so, so what I want to be clear in your mind is, it's, if you're sitting here going, yeah, I think I'm saved because I actually believe there is a man named Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
My, my kids can believe that that's a Nintendo Switch. That doesn't mean they've taken it. It's not just acknowledging there was a person named Jesus Christ. Demons do that all day long. They know he's real. And it's not only giving cognitive assent that salvation is possible. Yeah, 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 I really believe it's possible to be saved. It's taking Jesus Christ as your savior yourself. You have to accept this thing. And until you accept it, you're not saved. Just like my kids haven't actually accepted the gift till they're possessing it as their own. This is important to understand. Faith isn't just agreeing that salvation is offered. Faith is that act which you not only see the gift that the hero is offering, but you take it. That's faith. And what Paul's teaching is you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. You have to take what he's offering, receiving it as your own. So here's the question for this section. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? It would be so sad. It would be so sad for you to go through your life knowing who the hero is, knowing that the hero has offered you a gift, but never taking it. Oh, how sad. If you have not accepted faith, by faith, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, you are not saved, and you still stand under the righteous judgment of God. But having now clarified the problem, explained the twist, talked about the hero, it is time for our final big idea. Just like in every action adventure movie, at the end is a thrilling final scene. It's the money scene where Ethan Hunt faces the bad guy. And it doesn't matter if there's a hundred bad guys or if there's just one really, really bad guy. But in the final scene, it all comes together. And that's where we're at now in the sermon. The most stunning ending to the greatest of all time paragraph, the final scene, 22b to 26. Here's the text. Just in case you've been snoozing the whole sermon, you can lean in right here. Here's the synopsis. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 24, and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is where it gets a little bit tricky with our vocabulary. This is dense theological terms. I do want to explain these words. If you're taking notes, would you just go ahead and circle justified and redemption? So we're going to get to that in a sec. I want to explain that to you. 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Circle propitiation. That's a good one. Circle faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, might as well circle that one, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you go ahead and circle forbearance, righteous, just, justifier? Just read through it and circle all the big words. You got to get this. Hand cramp yet? Okay, if you're tracking, you got your little note page. About a thousand words circled here. Here's what was helpful. Let's start with this idea of just or justify or justification and 
righteousness. So it turns out I did the work in the original language. Uh, by the way, if you didn't know, he didn't write this in English. <laughs> so if you went to the Roman church, you would not understand in English what he was saying. He wrote it in a different language, Koine Greek. And in the Greek, righteousness and justify have the same root. They are linguistically linked. So much so that if you would find real quick in the text the seven times that he uses the word righteous or righteousness and justice or justification, just and justifier, all of those, those are same, same word family. Okay, so that kind of simplifies some of the dense vocabulary when he realized, oh, he's just using the same word over and over and over again. He wants us to get this word. And it's kind of clunky to say it in English, but, but let me read to you in English, if we just use the same word, what this would sound like to the original hearers who would know in the original language these are the same words. Here's what it sounds like. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed in a new way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who makes us righteous and this gift of redemption and propitiation shows God's righteousness, both in not judging those who sinned before Jesus as well as shows us his righteousness today because he's both the righteous and the righteous maker. So that, I hope, helps resolve for you what can be complicated grammatically for us in English. Okay, justice and justification and righteous, those are the same linguistically linked ideas. That's those two words. Okay, now we've looked at, if you look at all the circled words you have, we've looked at righteous and all those cognates. We've learned, looked at justify and all those linked words. I've already explained to you what faith is. Faith is accepting something as your own. So we've talked through faith. I've already defined God's righteousness, so we're good there. The next word I do want us to define, we have three left. Forbearance, redemption, propitiation. Forbearance. Forbearance is God's patient restraint. God's slow to anger. He's patient. His restraint in waiting to judge sins. That's what forbearance means. And you can see that in the text. He, he passed over former sins. He passed over former sins. He was patient. He will judge them, but he passed over. That's forbearance. Here's redemption. Redemption, from Moo's commentary on Romans, it denotes an act of buying out of slavery and suggests that God provided in Jesus Christ a full payment for our sin that we might be released from its bondage to serve a new master. That's redemption. That you and I were in a dungeon of slavery. A dungeon of slavery unable to offer one penny to be released. And Jesus came in and he paid it all so we could be let out. What a beautiful picture. That's redemption. God's buying us out of slavery. We were dead men and women locked away. Jesus paid the price, paid our debt. Well, with what did he pay? It wasn't money. Nope, it was his blood. And that brings us to our final term to be defined. Propitiation. Propitiation, which I think might be the greatest of all time vocabulary word in the text. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. The 
the satisfaction of God's wrath, that God's wrath, his righteous judgment we deserve, has been satisfied. And how is it satisfied? By the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament images God's wrath like a big cup that is full of wrath and fury. Jesus took the cup and he drained it. And if you're in him, there's nothing left in the cup. Do you remember early in the text when Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, this word propitiation is in the Old Testament, Exodus 25. For Old Testament nerds, it's there on the Ark of the Covenant between the two angels, and it's this special place that a priest would bring some blood in, and they would flick blood there on the mercy seat. Mercy seat is a synonym for propitiation. This is a very special honoring ceremony in the tabernacle. They'd go in, they'd put some blood there, and that would temporarily expunge the sin of the people. But they had to do it over and over and over because a lamb's blood or a bull's blood or goat's blood, that's not sufficient to fully atone. But Jesus' blood, his blood went on the mercy seat. That's what Paul's saying. He's bringing this all back to the Old Testament. He's going, hey, everybody, the Old Testament's telling us this. Jesus' blood did what the blood of lambs and bulls and goats couldn't do. It propitiated once for all the wrath of God. Who could have ever invented this gospel logic that there is another way? Who would have guessed that the one perfectly righteous would satisfy God's wrath by shedding his own blood? That the one who is just would become the justifier. The righteous one would become the righteous maker through his death. I hope this final scene has left you satisfied. It is the greatest rescue story ever. And, and, and it is mind-blowing that the perfect son of God would redeem us from sin slavery by shedding his own blood. And for any who believe by faith that that is true, you said, yes, I believe that's the offer and I've accepted it as my own, you have been saved. And you are not staring down the barrel of God's righteous wrath. And the day that you and I face judgment, just like all the Roman Christians are going to face judgment, just like all our friends and family and neighbors are going to face judgment, on that day, you would be able to say, Lord, I'm, I'm calling on Jesus Christ, and, and he propitiated your wrath. I'm trusting in Jesus. And he would say, you're saved. There you have it. That is my best explanation of the greatest of all time paragraph. <laughs> but before we finish, allow me to ask one final question. Since we're all gonna get judged at the end of time, where will God place you at judgment? Every soul will be judged. There is no exception. There are no exemptions. You will be judged. Where will God place you? Are you righteous 
Are you unrighteous? The only way to be justified is through Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're still thinking, I don't know, man, I'm really, really pretty good. I followed a lot of the rules. Maybe I am good enough. If you're here and you're still comparing yourself to others thinking, yeah, but I'm better than like 80% of humans alive. I know because I track it. That's how I plan on being justified before God. You want to see my Excel document? It's real good. (laughs) That's what you're thinking. It's like this. Salvation through works would be like us saying, you can be saved if you would just swim the Pacific Ocean. Just swim the Pacific Ocean, and if you can make it beach to beach, no help, you can be saved. The legalist would say, I might even be able to swim for 30 days. Whereas all the rest of the awful people in the world, they'll only make it for 30 minutes because they're not good swimmers. But I've been swimming really good. I'm a really good swimmer, so I, I think I can do it. California to Asia. But the Pacific Ocean isn't going to be swam in 30 days. I looked it up. It's six to nine months. So yeah, you might be able to swim farther than me in works righteousness land, but you're still drowning. You can't do it. Nobody can do it. I don't care how hard you're trying, it's not about effort. It is impossible. But what the gospel teaches is there was one who stood on the beach and he said, I can't do it. I'm going to swim that sucker. And then he did it. Stroke by stroke. And he made it to Asia. And he said, I win. And when he got there, they killed him for it. And here's what's so beautiful. He said, you know what? I have earned God's righteousness through my perfect life, death, and resurrection but I'm going to take my little trophy, I'm going to take my little award, and I will place it on your neck so that when you get up there, you can just show him, I swam the Pacific. I'm in. Of course, I I didn't swim the Pacific, but that's the way God sees us when you are justified. Like, Jeremy, what's up, bro? Perfectly righteous. Welcome to my heaven. Only because of Jesus. There's the gift of salvation for you. Where will God place you at judgment? Will he see you as perfectly righteous because of Jesus Christ? Or are you here still saying, man, I'm going to try to swim that thing? If you've never believed in Christ before, may this be the Memorial Day weekend. It's going to change the rest of your eternity. All you have to do, it's it's so easy, so easy. You just got to mean it. Hey, Jesus, would you be my Savior and I'll obey you? If you mean that, you be saved. <laughs> if you're here, if you're here and you're like, thanks, man. Thanks for the exposition. I've, always, I've trusted in faith for years and, and I'm on the other side because of Jesus and I, and I believe all that. This is all review. If you're here and your heart is not stirred by the gospel truths, let that be a dashboard warning light for you. If you're able to cruise through this sermon and just go, yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, those are great. Those are great questions. But your heart isn't stirred to gratitude Do business with God about that because this is the life-changing message that is, this is what makes us Christians. This is the heart of our faith. And your heart, I hope, Spirit, would you help us to explode with gratitude when we realize what God has done. So I love for you. Will you pray with me? And now, Christ, would you take your word, would you push it deep into our hearts and lives? 
Spirit, if there are some here who have not yet accepted by faith, would you do the miracle and save them? And Lord, we're thankful for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's spend a few moments reflecting on how the Lord might. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.